You are listening to the Through the Bible Studio Series with Pastor Nate Holdridge. Join us as we continue our study through the New Testament book of Acts. Here's Nate. Well, as we turn to Acts chapter 21, verse 17, we come to a highly anticipated moment in the life of Paul and in our journey through the book of Acts. The Holy Spirit has been warning Paul from city to city through various prophets and various means that suffering and chains awaited him in Jerusalem. Not only that, but Paul has anticipated greatly the possibility of preaching the gospel to the Jews in Jerusalem because his whole gospel preaching focus had been to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And as he was preaching to the Gentile world, his heart for the Jewish world had never dissipated. So now we come to the moment where Paul has arrived in Jerusalem. And it says in verse 17, when we had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. So, so far, so good. The brothers in the body of Christ there in Jerusalem, they received Paul and his companions in ministry gladly. It says in verse 18, on the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. After greeting them, he related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. Now, there is a question here in that one might wonder if the one-day delay in meeting James was an indication of some type of coldness from them toward Paul. I mean, James, after all, the leader there now of the church in Jerusalem should have been exuberant to see Paul, the apostle to the Gentile world, this dynamic man who has gone throughout the empire preaching the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. So much of what the church owed to Paul, James should have felt within his own heart. Now, maybe, though, it was just circumstances beyond his control that we don't know about. One thing that we do know is that it is likely that it was at this moment that Paul brought and delivered the gift for the Jerusalem church. He'll testify of this actually later to one of the Roman officials. He'll tell them, look, when I went to Jerusalem, I delivered a financial gift. But Luke is not concerned with that. His concern is elsewhere, so he doesn't detail the giving of the financial gift to the church. But he appears before James, the half-brother of Jesus, and he tells them one by one all the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. When they heard it, verse 20, they glorified God. So that's good. And they said to him, You see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews who have believed. That is good news. They are all zealous for the law. And my take on this is that this is bad news. They're, they've believed, that's good, but they're still zealous for the law. That seems to be their passion. It's not zealous for grace, not zealous for the gospel, but zealous for the law. They have been told about you, verse 21, that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to customs. What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. 
Do, therefore, what we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Take these men and purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads. Thus all will know that there is nothing in what they have been told about you, but that you yourself also live in observance to the law. But as for the Gentiles who have believed, we have sent a letter with our judgment that they should abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. Now, this to me strikes me as a sour note in Paul's reception by the Jerusalem church. It doesn't seem that the Jerusalem church is the epicenter of love and grace that it once was, but that now there is this passion for the law, that that what they're trying to preserve is not just the message that Christ is the Messiah, but that they're also trying to preserve this Judaism and really wanting to make sure that that is also communicated uh, to the world around them. It's not that they're preaching a works righteousness per se, but they are hoping that Paul is still practicing Judaism. Now, I think that Paul was referring to this very law in Galatians 4 verse 9 when he said that they had become the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world. So, this seems to be, to me, to be an odd request to Paul. Now, perhaps they were protecting themselves. Maybe they were, you know, wondering, how's this going to look for us to receive a Gentile financial donation? And maybe they were protecting Paul from slander that he was teaching Jews to apostatize from Judaism. But either way, it strikes me as an interesting reception from this church to Paul. Now, at the very least, what's good is that they have continued to communicate to the Gentile world that which the Acts 15 letter had communicated to the Gentile world. That, you know, they should abstain from things sacrificed to idols, blood, things strangled, and also from sexual immorality. But as I mentioned earlier, when we went through Acts chapter 15, it's really only the sexual immorality abstinence that travels into the rest of the New Testament. There are actually times where Paul teaches Gentiles how to discern whether they should or should not express a liberty to eat things that have been sacrificed to idols. So even these ceremonial things that the church in Jerusalem is clinging to, the church did not always cling to on down the line. But this seems to be their concern. So they invite Paul to take these men who have taken vows that apparently they didn't have the money to pay, and Paul, they wanted him to pay for them so that they would be able to complete their vow with the shaving of their heads. Now, Paul himself had done something like this. Earlier in the book of Acts, he had finished a vow himself and got his hair cut in centres. So perhaps that's what's going on here, that they're just doing this in a very godly uh, kind of way, as Paul had done. And this would perhaps point to the Nazarite vow of Numbers chapter 6. Then Paul took the men, verse 26, and the next day he purified himself along with them and went into the temple, giving notice when the days of purification would be fulfilled and the offering presented for each one of them. Now, apparently, coming from abroad, Paul would have had to regain ceremonial purity 
through a seven-day ritual of purification before he could go to this ceremony for these four Jewish Christians in the Jerusalem temple. So apparently that's what Paul is, is going through. And the question that we might ask is, was Paul wrong for entering into this arrangement? This was definitely part of the law. So was this okay for Paul to uh, engage in? Now, as I mentioned, in Acts 18, Paul himself had previously, it seems, taken a Nazarite vow. Later in the book of Acts, when he's in front of Felix, the governor in Caesarea, he'll have no problem referring to this very incident and without reservation or shame. Um, Later, we also know that Paul taught that to win Jews, he became like Jews and so that he was he was willing to do what it took to conform himself without violating the gospel to be like someone else for the sake of an opportunity, an open door. We, of course, know that one of Paul's goals in uh, for the Jerusalem trip, along with giving the financial package, was to unify Jew and Gentile. And so maybe he thought that this could be part of that work. And if he, you know, through this ceremony was involved in the offering of animal sacrifices, which he probably was, then, of course, Paul was not looking upon those as salvific in any way or atoning in any way, but as mere memorials of the fulfillment in the cross of Christ. And, of course, Paul always confessed that he had not violated his own conscience, so apparently this includes this moment because later in the book of Acts, he'll continue to confess. I've not violated my conscience. So it seems that Paul felt okay about doing this thing. So it might seem odd to us, but you know, Paul, he lived a different kind of life at a different kind of time. And definitely at this hinge kind of crux in the Israel Jewish Gentile paradigm in the early church. And it seems that the Lord was actually using this to bring to a conclusion the decision of the Jewish people to reject Christ as her Messiah. So we just just have to continue reading. It says in verse 7, when the seven days were almost completed, the Jews from Asia, so, you know, Ephesus was part of Asia Minor, and there were Jews from that region who would have traveled there to Jerusalem for the Pentecost. And seeing him in the temple, they stirred up the whole crowd and laid laid hands on them, crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law and this place. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen Trophimus the Ephesian with him in the city, and they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. So this rumor begins to be started that Paul has brought Greeks into the temple defiling the holy place. They actually had signs up, you know, declaring that if you were to do that, if a Gentile was to go into the temple, uh, it would be punishable by death. And so they'd begun to say that Paul had done this with a man named Trophimus, an Ephesian Gentile. But it was just something they supposed because they'd seen Paul and Trophimus hanging out in the city. And so they thought, oh, well, he also brought him into the temple, which was not true. Then all the city, verse 30, was stirred up and the people ran together. They seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple. And at once the gates were shut. 
And as they were seeking to kill him, word came to the tribune of the cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. He at once took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And when they saw the tribune and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Then the tribune came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. He inquired who he was and what he had done. Some in the crowd were shouting one thing, some another, and he could not learn the facts because of the uproar. He ordered him to be brought into the barracks, and when he came to the steps, he was actually carried by the soldiers because of the the violence of the crowd. For the mob of people followed, crying out, Away with him! Now this is the sixth riot that has been caused by Paul's ministry that Luke records. Derby and Lystra would be the first, Philippi, then Thessalonica, then Berea, Corinth the fifth, and now here in Jerusalem, riot number six. But this one has a special emphasis of vehement desire that appears so similar to the hatred that was expressed towards Jesus. Crucify him, crucify him, they said of Jesus. And here they say, away with him, away with him. As Paul was about to be brought into the barracks, he said to the tribune, May I say something to you? And the tribune said, Do you know Greek? Are you not the Egyptian then who recently stirred up a revolt and led the 4,000 men of the assassins out into the wilderness? Paul replied, I'm a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no obscure city. I beg you, permit me to speak to the people. Now, this is an interesting little twist in this narrative because Paul, speaking Greek, begins to speak to the tribune. And when he speaks in Greek, saying, can I talk with you? The tribune is shocked because he thought that Paul would not be able to or would refuse to speak Greek. And he refers to this Egyptian who had led 4,000 men of the assassins out into the wilderness. There apparently had been an Egyptian insurrectionist who the Romans had not yet apprehended. Of course, we remember that in that era and time, it's not like they had photographs cruising around or video footage of these different rebels. And so the assumption was made that Paul was that Egyptian rebel. Now, Josephus, the Jewish historian, actually wrote of an Egyptian imposter who claimed to be a prophet. Josephus, who is known to have inflated numbers from time to time, said that he had 30,000 followers. Uh, But Luke here says, no, 4,000 followers. And Josephus, though, records that in 54 AD, he came to the Mount of Olives, promising all his followers that the walls of Jerusalem would collapse at his command. But instead of that happening, the Roman army marched on them and killed some of them. But he, this Egyptian, escaped. So this is all outside of the Bible, but it makes its way into the Bible because the tribune thought, I I thought you were that Egyptian man. Paul said, no, that's not who I am. I'm a Jew. I'm from Tarsus. And I'm asking you to permit me to speak to the people. And when he had given him, verse 40, permission, Paul, standing on the steps, motioned with his hand to the people. And when there was a great hush, he addressed them in the Hebrew language, saying, Brothers and fathers, hear the defense that I now make before you. And when they heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew language, they became even more quiet. 
So Paul now puts off the Greek and he begins speaking in Hebrew, which caused the crowd that was gathered there together, the crowd that really didn't even know why they were there, it caused them to become quiet before Paul. Now, I imagine that this is a dream come true for Paul. I I imagine that the hope in his heart is absolutely off the charts. You know, he'd seen thousands of Gentiles believe, but he had wanted to see the Jews believe as well. So perhaps in his mind at this moment, he's thinking, this is an absolute dream come true. I am on the Temple Mount. I have a captive audience. There is going to be a revival These people are going to become believers in their Messiah. This is going to be another Pentecost. Peter got to preach on that first day over 20 years ago, and now I get to preach on the second day. All these people are going to become believers. And so Paul is going to talk to them now of what he was like before he was saved, and then talk about his conversion, and then the commissioning of Christ. He is hoping that his testimony will become helpful to convincing these Jews that Christ is the Messiah, the Savior of the world. And that's how he starts. I am a Jew, he said in verse 3, born in Tarsus of Cilicia, brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God as all of you are to this day. I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women. As the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear me witness, from them I received letters to the brothers, and I journeyed toward Damascus to take those also who were there and bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. Paul wants them to see not just how bad he was so that they can marvel at how bad he was. No, what he's trying to show them is... You know, I used to hate the very Christianity that I now believe in. I used to hate the very Jesus that I now preach. Now, this is fascinating because Jesus had told his disciples that when they were brought to trial, in that moment, the Holy Spirit would speak through them. And here, in this moment, the Holy Spirit decides through Paul to deliver the testimony of Paul. It's fascinating to see that when the Holy Spirit is driving, he starts with the personal testimony of this man. Uh, We should not devalue the message of our own personal testimony, our conversion experience, our change, and our transformation in Christ Jesus. And so that's where Paul began. But what would it be that would change this viewpoint that he had had in the past? You know, so willing to go to Damascus, like he just said, to punish Christians. Well, this is what happened next. Verse 6. As I was on my way and drew near to Damascus about noon, a great light from heaven suddenly shone around me, and I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. Now those who were with me saw the light, but did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. And I said, What shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, Rise and go into Damascus, and there you will be told all that is appointed for you to do. So Paul continues in proclaiming his testimony. We, of course, have seen this 
already in Acts chapter 9, but Luke is recounting it afresh as Paul publicly delivers it. And again, we have to fixate upon the line there that there in Damascus, Paul would be told all that is appointed for him to do. The Bible says in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 to 10, that we've been saved by grace through faith. It's not our own doing, but the gift of God, not a result of work so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Paul had works prepared beforehand by God that he should walk in and so do you. There is something that the Lord has appointed for you as well to engage in and to do. Since I could not see because of the brightness of that light, I was led by the hand by those who were with me and came into Damascus. And one Ananias, a devout man according to the law, well spoken of by all the Jews who lived there, came to me. And standing by me said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very hour I received my sight and saw him. And he said, the God of our fathers appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one and to hear a voice from his mouth. For you will be a witness for him to everyone of what you have seen and heard. And now, why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. Now, when Paul talks about this illumination, this light, he wants them to see the light as well. He wants the scales to fall from their eyes just as the scales had fallen from his eyes when Ananias had prayed for them. And I think Paul was praying for them right at this moment as he preached this message. He goes on and says in verse 17, When I had returned to Jerusalem, and now this was three years after his conversion, and was praying in the temple, I fell into a trance. Now this is a new thing that we learn from Paul. And saw him, Jesus, saying to me, Make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly, because they will not accept your testimony about me. And I said, Lord, they themselves know that in one synagogue after another I imprisoned and beat those who believed in you. And when the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, I myself was standing by and approving and watching over the garments of those who killed him. And he said to me, Go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. Now, again, this is very interesting because we don't have this little detail in Acts chapter 9. Paul tells us that when he went to Jerusalem, three years after his conversion, he did go to the temple. And there, the Lord put him into a trance and gave him a vision and spoke to him and told Paul to get out of Jerusalem quickly because they would not receive his testimony about him. Now, what's fascinating about that is that in Acts chapter 9, we do hear that Paul went to Jerusalem, and we also hear that the Christian brothers in the church there learned that persecution was coming Paul's direction, and so they were instrumental in getting Paul out of the city. In other words, it seems that Paul both had the advice of Christian brothers, but also the direct revelation from Christ in this vision. He had counsel, but he had a vision. He had that which seems very natural and that which seems very supernatural. And both of them effectively together led Paul. It's also interesting to see that Paul seems to have argued a little bit with Jesus. Lord, you know, Jesus tells him, get out of here. They're not going to hear you. And then Paul says, 
Lord, look, they know. And he gives Jesus his credentials. It's almost like he's arguing a little bit that, you know, I have a great testimony. They are going to hear it. They are going to receive a little bit of arguing here with God. Perhaps you know what this is like. But the message ended when Paul announced that Jesus at that point said to him, go for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. And it says in Acts 22, verse 22, the next verse, up to this word, they listened to him. Then they raised their voices and said, away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. They, they were listening up until the point that he talked about the Gentiles and that this message should go to the Gentile world. Now, it seems that this response is very important to the argument that Luke is making in the book of Acts. Part of his argument is that the Jews in Jerusalem had irrevocably refused the gospel of Jesus Christ and had sealed their fate. Why was there the destruction of the temple in 70 AD? Partly because of this. They had rejected the Messiah over and over and over again. And now the rejection is a generation long and it is final. Now, I don't believe that it is final, final in the sense that in Romans 9, 10, and 11, Paul seems to indicate that someday the people of Israel will receive their Messiah. Paul says in Romans 11, verse 12, if their trespass, you know, rejecting their Messiah, means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Now, Paul must have been heartbroken over this moment. You know, just he loved these people so much and he so hoped that they would receive the gospel. He had actually said in Romans 9 verse 3 that he wished that himself were could be accursed and cut off for the sake of his brothers, his kinsmen, according to the flesh. So his love ran deep for the Jewish people and it must have crushed him to see them reject the gospel, to reject their Messiah. And as they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks, verse 23, and flinging dust into the air, the tribune ordered him to be brought into the barracks, saying that he should be examined by flogging to find out why they were shouting against him like this. But when they had stretched him out for the whips, Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, Is it lawful for you to flog a man who is a Roman citizen and uncondemned? When the centurion heard this, he went to the tribune and said, What are you about to do? For this man is a Roman citizen. Apparently, it was illegal for a Roman citizen to be scourged in this way. This was something that they would do to try to produce a confession. Not just a beating, but something even more severe. And false citizens would not claim to be citizens to avoid this kind of flogging because once it was found out that they were not a real citizen, they would experience the death penalty. So this is a very severe thing that Paul is doing. So the tribune came and said to him, tell me, are you a Roman citizen? And he said, yes. And the tribune answered, I bought this citizenship for a large sum. That was something that you could do. You could actually get a sponsor and purchase a citizenship. But I am a citizen by birth. It's something that's even more powerful than just having bought it. So those who were about to examine him withdrew from him immediately. And the tribune also was afraid 
for he realized that Paul was a Roman citizen and that he had bound him. So now we get our scene that leads us into chapter 23, but there is a final verse in the 22nd chapter. It says, But on the next day, desiring to know the real reason why he was being accused by the Jews, he unbound him, the tribune did, and commanded the chief priests and all the council to meet, and he brought Paul down and set him before them. So the whole reason for this next meeting is that, that the tribune wants to know, why is he being accused by the Jews? And that's where we'll see Paul giving a defense of himself before the Jewish Sanhedrin. God bless you. Thank you for listening. For additional resources and teachings, or to contact us, please visit us at nateholdridge.com.